0: Welcome back to another podcast episode of Veteran Oversight Now, an official podcast of the VA Office of Inspector General. I'm your host, Fred Baker. Each month on this podcast, we'll bring you highlights of the VAOIG's recent oversight activities and interview key stakeholders in the office's critical work for veterans. Joining us today is Leanne Seawright and Brent Arante. Leanne and Brent are both Deputy Assistant Inspectors General for the Office of Audits and Evaluations. Welcome, Leanne and Brent. How are you today?
1: Great. Thank you, Fred. Doing well.
0: Great. Well, your office just recently released two reports related to burn pits and toxic exposure. Uh, one was on VA's management of the registry and exam process, and the other was a review of veterans' claims decisions associated with burn pit exposure. This topic is very timely, given the recent passage of the PACT Act, which will make available benefits to millions of veterans who were exposed to toxic substances uh, during their military uh, service. This is a very serious topic, but before we get to these two reports, I'd like to take this opportunity to introduce you to the listeners. Uh, I'd like you to give us a little idea of who you are. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about yourself, your family, any hobbies, (laughs) and what brought you to the VAOIG. Leanne, why don't you start?
2: Sure. Um, I've been with the VAOIG for about four and a half years after uh, twenty years with Army Audit Agency. I'm a mom of two rough and tumble boys, and I've decided that I'm going to soon be an aspiring senior circuit golfer once I retire, but good thing that I'm not retiring for at least another fifteen years because I've got a long way to go. What's your handicap? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Brent. So
1: I joined the um, VAOIG in 2005, so I've, I've been with the IG approximately 17 years. Prior to that, I am retired Army, and then I worked for a VA regional office for about four or five years before joining the VAOIG. OIG. Uh, currently, I am located at our Bay Pines campus in St. Petersburg, Florida, uh, where my wife and son and two daughters also reside with me. Uh, I think one of my, two of my hobbies is I like refereeing uh, young folks, sports and baseball and football. And I also aspire to play golf. I'm not as good as Leanne um, and my handicap would be embarrassing. Great,
0: great, thanks. So turning to the report, Brent, Leanne, uh, you both lead cohorts that have different oversight focuses, uh, which is why we have two reports instead of, of just one. Deanna, explain to the listeners the focus of your cohort and how it applies to your report. Sure. Uh, and then Brent, if you'll follow up with the same question.
2: So my cohort is the Veterans Affairs um, Veterans Health Affairs Cohort. And our focus is really on any program and operations within the within the VHA portfolio. However, um, and that could stretch from supply chain management to suicide prevention. However, what we don't focus on is quality of care. We leave that work to the Office of Healthcare Inspections.
1: Okay. In my cohort, we are responsible for the oversight of the Veterans Benefits Administration, also known as VBA, and the National Cemetery Administration, also known as NCA. Our coverage is over all disability and pension compensation claims, education services, vocational readiness or veteran readiness and employment, loan guarantee, and um, insurance programs. Great. So
0: let's, let's get into the content of the reports. Uh, Le- Leanne and Brent, can, can you both start uh, by explaining to the listeners exactly what what are burn pits and, and generally where they occurred. Uh, help, help draw that picture for the listeners uh, about what we're talking about. Because uh, uh, we're not really talking about just, you know, barrels of burning trash, right?
1: Correct. Um, burn pits have been used by military, military forces as long as we've had military forces. Um, as they relate to our reports, we focused on those burn pits located in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Djibouti. Burn pits are just that, pits dug into the ground that are used to dispose of solid waste. This waste can be anything from plastic, paper, and human waste. Typically, these military forces use some type of fuel, generally jet fuel, to ignite and burn the waste. Burn pits can be as small as a, a little hole in the ground, up to 10 to 20 acres wide. These toxins are The toxins that come from these burn pits are a result of... <clears throat> The waste being destroyed, but the, but one of the issues is all the waste, 100% of the waste is never destroyed. And the waste that, that gets into the air is, tr- is transmitted to where our veterans are serving or our service members are serving. And we believe that is how uh, exposure to these toxins occur.
0: Great. Well, Leanne, let's talk uh, about your report first. Uh, airborne hazards and open burn pit registry exam process needs improvement. Uh, in 2013, Congress mandated that VA establish this airborne hazards and open burn pit registry to research potential health impacts uh, of such exposures during military service. Um, what can you tell us about the registry and what did veterans have to do to get on the registry?
2: Right. So, the registry, as you mentioned, was mandated in 2013 for VA to create, and VHA was assigned that responsibility as they're the research and healthcare arm of VA. Um, However, the mandate didn't actually require exams, but VHA made the decision to add exams to that process so that they could use it as a platform to collect information to inform their research. So the registry um, itself was established in 2014, and it's an online questionnaire with approximately 140 questions, and it usually takes a veteran about 30 30 minutes to an hour to complete. Um, And the questionnaire gives veterans an opportunity to um, request an exam as part of that process. They're not required to do an exam, but they have the option to request that exam, and it's at no charge to the veteran to do the exam. And the, the focus of the questionnaire really is on the length and proximity of exposure to the specific hazards. That's really the information they're trying to gather out of that registry. So. Um, To even register or to do the registry exam, you have to be eligible, and and that eligibility is determined determined based on where you were deployed. So if you were deployed to Southwest Asia after August 2nd, 1990, or if you were deployed to Afghanistan, Syria, Djibouti, Uzbekistan um, on September 19th, 2001 or later, then you are um, eligible to um, apply and to, to complete the questionnaire. Um, Some of the benefits of the exam are to you know, from the veteran's perspective, it identifies medical conditions earlier. Um, it complements the questionnaire, um, the answers to the questionnaire. So it allows to, for better information to the providers as they do these exams. And it also supports potential claims for compensation related to service connection. Um, and as I said before, all of this information um, further informs research, which further informs care for all veterans.
0: So back to the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the exam is not automatic by filling out the questionnaire. I understand from reading the report there was some confusion uh, on the veterans' part with the questionnaire, them, them not realizing that uh, completing it uh, did not automatically amount to a request for an exam. So what was the percentage of those who completed the questionnaire but didn't schedule an exam, and, and how should veterans request a registry exam?
2: Right, so um, you know, almost three, three million, three and a half million uh, veterans are actually eligible to, to apply for, uh, to complete the questionnaire, and of those, about three hundred eighty-four thousand started the questionnaire, Um, and this is as of November thirtieth, twenty twenty-one, but only fifty-eight percent of those. Um, 384,000 veterans actually completed the questionnaire. And then if you break that down further, we found that only 125,000 of those veterans, so almost half, indicated an interest interest in the exam. And sadly, only 15% of those veterans actually received an exam. So
0: why have so few received the exam and what is VHA doing to improve the registry exam
2: process? So there's uh, there's really a number of reasons on the exam process. So one is to, to receive an exam, it's on the onus of the veteran, which is really kind of counter to VHA and being veteran-centric. But it's upon the veteran to reach out to the facility to schedule the exam. And as you complete the exam, you express interest early on in the process, and then 30 minutes to an hour passes as you're filling this out. And it gives you a little bit of an impression that you're going to be contacted because you're giving all this information, but really, it's supposed to just give you information to then contact the facility. So they, at the end, it provides you a link to say, you know, here's a participation letter, here's more information to where to contact, what facility you should contact, and then they'll work, walk you through the process or uh, um, schedule the the um, the exam. But you know, COVID, as with a lot of programs over the last few years, played a big part in um, slowing down that exam process. A lot of the resources that BHA had dedicated to the exams were reallocated to support COVID um, and the, the care needed as part of that. But we really believe that the predominant reason that um, the, the exam rate is so low is because veterans didn't really understand that it was up to them. We also found that um, the contact information that was provided to these veterans wasn't up to date as well. So, the uh, local coordinator's contact information, their phone number was wrong, the person was wrong. So, the veteran really didn't know who to contact to be able to schedule that exam. Um, and then, no facilities, or really a majority of the facilities, did any outreach. To reach out to these veterans, so there was no requirement for them to do that. However, they were provided information that would allow them to reach out to veterans. And um, when we found facilities that did start outreach, you know, it was two or three years for some of these veterans since they had filled out the exam, wow. and they were like, "Well, we've been waiting, you know, for you to call sure. me. What took you so long?" Um, and so, um, and lastly, I think really just the lack of oversight. There's a, a very broad lack of awareness and oversight over the process. It was very localized in how it was handled.
0: So what, uh, what did we make, uh, what did we recommend to address the issues with, uh, this report?
2: So we made, um, seven recommendations. So first, um, you know the primary recommendation that we made was to improve the questionnaire. The questionnaire is um, very intensive and for good reasons. It's collecting a lot of information, but it, it really is um, it is um, wearing on the veteran to fill out. And so I think a lot of veterans lose um, interest in completing the questionnaire. So that's you know, the first uh, point of entry or removal you know, from the process. Um, and then also to improve awareness um, in scheduling, how to schedule, increasing that outreach um, to allow for that scheduling, um, ensuring that update the contact information is updated for the environmental health coordinators, um, follow up requiring follow up at the facilities to reach out to these veterans and get these scheduled, and then tracking the timeliness that they set these metrics, but then they had really no defined way to track. That timeliness. So um, we've asked them to assess that process as well, and then um, just the, you know, the uh, improvement of the data reliability. We found almost fourteen thousand veterans that were sort of lost in the data because their zip code information wasn't um, aligned appropriately to facilities. And then transferring, being able to transfer veterans from one facility to the next to ensure that they receive care where they need to receive care, and lastly, just the oversight and monitoring of the process, having vision and facility level oversight at a greater level.
0: Great, thanks, Leanne. So is there anything else I missed about this report that you'd like to highlight?
2: Um, The only other thing I would like to highlight is uh, VHA has established or is in the process of establishing the Vet Homes Program, which is the Veterans Environmental Team Health Outcomes Military (laughs) Exposure um, Call Center. And this is supposed to go live in October 2022. So hasn't happened yet, but they are working towards it. And that is supposed to help improve the coordination of scheduling. It still makes it; um, it is still very much on the veteran to schedule those exams. But this is a better entry point into that process to allow for that. And then they'll also do telehealth. Um, exams to start the process with and it's a call center to you know help veterans work through the questionnaire and answer questions
0: it, it definitely sounds uh, much more helpful yes thanks Leanne so so we'll turn to Brent uh, Brent talk about the, the, the your burn pit report uh, published in July uh, it was called uh, veterans prematurely denied compensation for conditions that could be associated with burn pit exposure and it focused like as we said earlier on the processes of, of claims Related to burn pit exposure,, uh, can you tell us why you were conducting this review?
1: Sure, it, it was straightforward, Fred. we were um, we wanted to to look at VBA's processes and procedures to make sure that they were following those accurately to ensure veterans received the um, compensation benefits that they deserved.
0: And your report says that you found uh, that though VBA staff nearly always made a correct decision in granting the compensation for conditions identified as burn pit related, uh, you found that most denials were premature. Can you explain that?
1: Sure. That's a great question. Um, we, We looked at a statistical sample of claims that were granted by the VBA claims processors and the claims that were denied. The claims that were uh, processed accurately and gr- that were granted and processed accurately, uh, we looked at sixty and fifty-six of the sixty were accurate, and and the reason they were accurate is is for two reasons. One, when the veterans submitted their claim, they clearly laid out that the claim was was uh, for a respiratory condition associated with burn pit exposure. That led the that was a clear. Guidance really for the for the claims processor to say, oh yes, this is a burn pit claim. I need to go follow those specific rules, and they did, and they did it well. Uh, we looked at, at uh, a statistical statistical sample of claims that that um, they denied, and we found a high rate of premature denials, and that was twofold. Um, one. Uh, in those cases, the veterans did not clearly say that this was a burn pit related claim. So, the, and and the, and the second issue is because of that, the claims processors did not. It just did not a light did not go off in their head saying, oh, this is a burn pit claim. I need to follow special rules for that. They just saw this was a claim for a respiratory condition, and they they did not associate those claimed respiratory conditions with the locations where veterans. Uh, are are being uh, identified as exposed to burn pits such as Iraq, Afghanistan, and Djibouti.
0: So is that what caused the premature denials, or were there other factors?
1: Uh, There there were other factors um, that caused the premature denials. Uh, Our team found that uh, uh, the claims processor failed to request a required medical examination. When when a veteran files a claim for one of these respiratory conditions— a medical exam is needed and a medical opinion is required that the examiner will link the veteran's current diagnosis of a respiratory condition to, to uh, a burn pit exposure. That was probably the major reason why a lot of these were, uh, were prematurely denied because they did not uh, obtain all the required evidence before they made the decision.
0: And, and the report mentions that VBA has since updated some of its guidance. What's been updated and how does that affect uh, the report's findings and recommendations?
1: Ooh, another good another good question. Um, yes, VBA did update their, their guidance. Uh, the new guidance expands the criteria to be considered when a veteran files a burn pit related claim. This new criteria now recognizes back to August of 1990 for the first Gulf War, which they they never considered that time period. And they also added um, several countries in in Southwest Asia to include Syria, Egypt, Jordan, Yemen, and Lebanon. That was the the major crux of their change in guidance. And this is gonna expand now for veterans that were in those areas to now file claims For burn pit, because they were in those, they are now in countries that are recognized as uh, as areas where these burn pits were being used extensively.
0: So, what were your uh, final recommendations to VBA regarding the processing of burn pit claims?
1: So, so like Leanne's report, um, we made seven recommendations to the department. These recommendations centered around taking a relook at those claims that were prematurely denied go back and, and, and gather the, uh, the appropriate evidence and then remake a decision. And the decisions could still be a denial, or they. but at least they now have all the evidence to make a sound decision. Um, they, we ask them to update their procedures for uh, uh, how to process a burn pit claim, uh, update their training materials, and modify, and what's critical is to modify the medical exam request to help the examiner also understand That the claim is a burn pit claim, and they also have to now consider special um, criteria to determine if these respiratory conditions have the likelihood of being a result of exposure to burn pit claim or to burn pits.
0: So, if if they know the individual served there and they're filing for a respiratory claim, that light bulb can go off. And, and they can say, this is right. burn
1: pit related. Right, right, not just for the claims processor, but for the examiner as well. Because if the if, if the examiner is not made aware, they're gonna treat this like a, a, a regular claim for direct service connection. And if the veteran is claiming asthma and they look in the service medical records and there's no indication of, of treatment for asthma, then, and without the consideration that they were exposed to burn pits, they would probably be denied. Got it, got it, perfect. So as both of you know, the president signed the PACT Act, uh,
0: which was a long-awaited bill expanding uh, health care, VA health care uh, benefits for those impacted by toxic military burn pits. Uh, this was, of course, after your reports uh, were published and out of out of the scope of those reports. What, if any, uh, does the passage of of this legislation have on your findings and recommendations?
2: So for for our audit, the the impact in my mind on the PACT Act to our audit is that training um, is going to be reinforced and access and awareness. So veterans now have a greater access to the exams as they enter VHA, like just as a new entrant into the VHA healthcare realm, they'll get this burn pit um, toxic exposure exam. You know, from the start. So whether they fill out the registry or not, they'll already have that exam done, which then helps you know ensure that their health outcomes are being monitored and if there's any association. Um, so I think that this really is going to improve that awareness and and um, and information. Great,
1: Brent. Any? Mm-hmm. So I, I agree with Leanne. There's going to be increased awareness. Um, staff are going to have to be trained. Uh, on 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 how to evaluate and rate these types of disabilities, um, the PACT Act expands the areas and specific types of diseases of veterans can claim service connection for. Um, that's not really an impact to our project, um, but it, it's going to make it, it's going to s- significantly increase awareness of of what types of exposures and where folks were stationed to help help them get benefits. Um, However, I think the the PACT Act is going to have a significant impact on VBA's ability to tackle their backlog. They are going to see an increase in claims like they have probably never seen, um, and and this is is going to test their resources.
0: Great, great.
1: Leanne, Brent, uh, is there anything else you'd like to add before we sign off today?
2: Nothing on my end nothing here
0: i appreciate you having us fred uh, well thank you thank you for taking the time to discuss these uh, very timely reports uh, to read the full reports go to va OIG, go to the VAOIG website at va.gov forward slash oig and click on reports under the publications tab now i'll turn it over to co-host adam roy who will present the most recent monthly highlights of the va oig's oversight work take it adam
3: Thanks, Fred. Now I'll highlight some of the work the VAOIG completed in July 2022. Emphasis on the VA's electronic health record modernization program continued as the VAOIG testified before Congress and published two more related reports. On July 20, Deputy Inspector General David Case testified before the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee. The hearing focused on VA's challenges with deploying the new electronic health record a recently released lifecycle cost estimate for the program, and the OIG's recent reports discussing an unknown queue of unfulfilled medical orders and other risks to patient safety at medical facility and clinic initial operating sites. Mr. Case answered questions about the system's unknown queue of thousands of medical orders that the system did not deliver to their intended location and other concerns the OIG had about VA's implementation and transparency. A week later, on July 27, Mr. Case, now joined by Principal Deputy Assistant Inspector General for Healthcare Inspections, Dr. Julie Korviak, testified before the House Veterans Affairs Subcommittee on Technology Modernization. Here, the hearing focused on VA's deployment timeline for the new electronic health record, the program's costs, and the OIG's recent reports detailing problems that include the unknown queue and other risks to patient safety, as well as the barriers users face to providing prompt access to high quality care. They answered questions about patient harm resulting from the unknown queue and voiced concerns about identified problems in their mitigation. Of note, they discussed the lack of transparency when the then change management leaders from VA's Office of Electronic Health Record Modernization submitted inaccurate information to the OIG during a review of the user training for the new system and its evaluation of trainees proficiency. You can find Mr. Case's written testimony for both of these hearings on our website under the media tab. And we've included a link to the committee's website in July's monthly highlights available under the publications tab if you'd like to watch the recordings of these hearings as well. Both of these hearings stem from two reports on the VA's electronic health record modernization program published in July. The first report highlights an administrative investigation by the Office of Special Reviews. The investigation found that the two leaders in va's then office electronic health record modernization change management group did not intentionally seek to mislead oig healthcare inspectors during a prior review of va's training for medical facility staff on a new record system however the leader's carelessness resulted in delayed and inaccurate information being submitted to the oig that impeded oversight efforts errors in removing all failing scores and not disclosing that data were removed and were possibly unreliable led to misreporting more favorable pass rates than those initially calculated internally. OIG recommended giving guidance to program staff on providing timely, accurate, and complete responses to OIG requests, encouraging direct staff-level communication to resolve questions, and considering whether administrative action should be taken concerning the conduct of the two leaders. In a separate report the oig assessed a safety concern with the new electronic health record that resulted in patient harm the oig reviewed the safety risk and found that the new ehr sent thousands of orders for medical care to an undetectable location or unknown queue instead of the request to location van users were unaware of the unknown queue And VHA staff completed clinical reviews to assess patient harm and found the unknown queue caused 149 patient harm events. In late 2021, VHA staff provided the Deputy Secretary and the Executive Director for VA's EHR modernization effort with information on the unknown queue safety concern and patient harm. Despite actions to minimize orders being routed to the unknown queue, the OIG has concerns with the effectiveness of Oracle Cerner's plan to mitigate the safety risk of the unknown queue. Now for some updates to investigations by our special agents. An investigation by the VAOIG, FBI, and the Orange County Sheriff's Office revealed an accounting technician at the Orlando VA Medical Center solicited and received sexual content from a 13-year-old victim. The defendant used his VA-issued computer in furtherance of the sexual exploitation of this victim. This defendant pleaded guilty in the Middle District of Florida to sexual exploitation of a child and possession of child pornography. In another investigation conducted by VA OIG and the Social Security Administration OIG resulted in charges alleging that a veteran received VA individual unemployability benefits and Social Security disability benefits while self-employed as a construction worker and business operator. The defendant allegedly obtained additional Social Security benefits for his daughter based upon these false claims as well. The defendant was found guilty by a federal jury in the Eastern District of Arkansas on charges of conspiracy due to defraud the United States, theft of government funds, and bankruptcy fraud. The total loss to the government is approximately $396,000. Of this amount, the total loss to VA is approximately $132,000. Read more about these and other cases the VAOIG investigated in the July monthly highlights. Including the two reports I mentioned above, the VAOIG published 16 reports in July. I'll briefly highlight a few of them. We issued two reports about VA Regional Procurement Office or RPO activities. Because of the problems identified in an FY 2020 report on contract closeout compliance at RPO East, the OIG reviewed to determine whether RPO Central and RPO West contracting officers adequately performed and documented contract closeout requirements. The OIG reviewed a random sample of contact tracks and found contracting officers at the two RPOs did not perform required closeout duties. Reasons included unclear policies and systems, ineffective oversight of the process and a heavy workload. The OIG recommended the executive directors for RPO Central and RPO West establish consistent quality assurance reviews, balance contracting officer workload, and update guidance on simplified acquisition procedures. The OIG recommended considering additional strategies to ensure contract closeout compliance and verifying that the contract files for the 81 sampled contracts have complete closeout documentation. In another report, The OIG reviewed whether RPO West contracting officials administered contracts and accepted supplies and services in accordance with federal and VA regulations. The OIG found they did not always maintain documentation to demonstrate proper acceptance of supplies and services. Several factors contributed to noncompliance, including officials not understanding their responsibilities, heavy workload, ineffective oversight, and prioritization of awarding contracts. This non-compliance resulted in $12.8 million in question cost. The OIG made eight recommendations to RPO's West's Executive Director to strengthen contract administration, including establishing controls to ensure electronic files are created for all contracts requiring a representative, delegation memorandums are completed when required, and representatives upload required acceptance documentation. The Executive Director should also assess existing contracts for compliance and correct as needed. VAOIG's Office of Healthcare Inspections also published two comprehensive healthcare inspection reports in July. These reports focused on the Martinsburg VA Medical Center in West Virginia and the VA Capital Healthcare Network in Maryland. And lastly, I'll share a recent VAOIG hotline case. This month's featured hotline case involves an allegation that the community based outpatient clinic in Princeton, West Virginia, had over 900 appointments that had not been scheduled. The complaint also alleged that no correspondence was sent and no documentation was uploaded to the computer patient record system. The clinic's parent facility, the Beckley VA Medical Center, conducted a review and identified all patients seen at the clinic between January 1, 2020 and December 31, 2021. The review found that 386 patients experienced a wait time of greater than 60 days from the patient-indicated date. The review determined that 382 patients did not experience any type of harm because of the delay, and the remaining four patients were determined as unknown. As a result of the findings, the clinic implemented several corrective actions. These include using resources from Beckley VA Medical Center to help the Princeton Clinic work their backlog, a new daily checklist for medical support assistants to certify daily completion of their requirements, a new local standard operating procedure for medical support assistance to process orders and other documents, and the elimination of unnecessary processes. That's it for the July highlights. Read all monthly highlights on our website. And while you are there, check out a relatively new feature, the VAOIG's Fraud Toolkit and Crime Alerts. The VAOIG investigates a wide range of potential crimes, from financial crimes to threats against VA personnel and property to actions associated with patient harm. The toolkit provides a list of key possible indicators specific to various types of fraud. The list is far from exhaustive, but it does identify common signs that VA personnel contractors in the veteran community, and maybe some of you listening out there, should be aware of in order to report suspicious activity and alleged wrongdoing to the OIG hotline. Examples of potential indicators include compensation benefits fraud, healthcare fraud, public corruption and kickbacks, and fraud related to public health crises like we have seen recently with the pandemic. You can find the toolkit right on our homepage. That's it for this episode of Veteran Oversight Now. I encourage you to check out other episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.
4: This has been an official podcast of the VA Office of Inspector General. Veteran Oversight Now is produced by the Office of Communications and Public Affairs and is available at va.gov forward slash OIG. Tune in monthly to hear how the VA OIG serves veterans, their families, and caregivers through meaningful independent oversight. Check out the website for more on the VA OIG Oversight Mission. Read current reports and keep up to date on the latest criminal investigations. Report potential crimes related to VA, waste or mismanagement, potential violations of laws, rules or regulations or risks to patients, employees or property to the OIG online or call the hotline at 1-800-488-8244. If you are a veteran in crisis or concerned about one, call the veterans crisis line at 1-800-273-8255. Press one and speak with a qualified responder now.